Hello and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross, and today I'll be your guide as we explore the topic of, well, we're going to be talking about the James Webb Space Telescope and uh, whether it supports or denies uh, the Big Bang uh, cosmic creation model. But before we get into the discussion, I wanted to encourage you to describe to our channel, Reasons to Believe, our YouTube channel, and click on the bell icon so you can be informed of our new videos. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at RTB underscore official. Well, I'm joined today by Michael Strauss. Uh, he's a particle physicist at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, you go back quite a few decades with us at Reasons to Believe. I'm trying to remember the first time we met one another and you began to speak on behalf of Reasons to Believe. Uh, but I know we've been counting on you to kind of hold down the, the fort force uh, in Oklahoma and Texas and elsewhere. And you've also been addressing a lot of our chapters. So have I missed anything? No, that's good. Yeah, I I think it was around 1992. So it's probably been about 30 years ago that you and I first met and that I first started working with Reasons to Believe as a volunteer. Yeah, and I got to meet your brothers and uh, your brothers pay you a big compliment, Mike. Uh, they make reference to your dad and your brothers as being a family of theologians. But they also say the best theologian in our family is uh, Michael, the particle physicist. So well, it's always a pleasure to be with you and to talk with you about the issues of science and faith and how they interrelate and what we learn about God from science. Well, that's great. And today what's on the table is uh, addressing a big web rumor. I mean, there's all kinds of web articles out there claiming, wow, the James Webb Space Telescope is giving us these spectacular images, uh, but it's upsetting the apple cart. Uh, it's really looking like it's refuting the Big Bang creation model. So uh, what do you say about that rumor? Yeah, well, as you know, this whole thing has blown up on the internet and it really all boils down to a single person, really, who has promoted the idea for at least 30 years that the Big Bang didn't happen and that all the evidence for it is being misunderstood. Um, and the, the scientist is a plasma physicist uh, named Eric Lerner, who has written a book on this in 1991 and then wrote an article. Yeah, there's yeah, the book. book right here, yeah. <laughs> and wrote an article recently based on the new evidence for the Big Bang and as things happen, or the new evidence from the James Webb Space Telescope. And as things happen on the internet, one thing can blow up and it's blown up. I've got a number of emails from people asking me, has the Big Bang been refuted? So uh, I have a long history with Eric Lerner. Uh, a few months after his book came out in 1991, I wound up doing a radio debate with him uh, about his claim uh, in his book, The Big Bang Never Happened, that gravity is not the dominant component governing the dynamics of the universe. Uh, rather, it's electromagnetic radiation, uh, charged particles uh, within the universe. And I found out that, uh, and I knew this before the debate, that he's a big fan of Hans Elvain. I mean, he's a Nobel laureate in physics. And uh, 
you know, like Eric, uh, I can remember all the way back to my teenage years reading Hans Zellwein's uh, ideas about how electromagnetic radiation may alter our view of the universe. And he used the word alter, not overthrow. Uh, he saw it as something that might refine understanding. And I thought, no, this is interesting. Maybe we'll get a deeper understanding of galaxies and galaxy clusters if we take into account the magnetic fields. And so I'm, I was just curious at the time, I wonder when we get the capability of measuring these magnetic fields, is it going to sustain Hans Zellwein's ideas? But Eric in his book is basically making a claim that electromagnetic uh, fields are dominating the dynamics of the universe to such a degree that the Big Bang had never happened. Yeah, so first of all, I'm impressed that you're reading Alvain as a teenager. I was certainly not reading physics as a teenager. But, but second, haven't those magnetic fields been you know, measured and observed now, right? Oh, well, I've written several articles that you'll see at reasons.org on galactic magnetic fields. And I think what's most interesting to cosmologists are what they refer to as intergalactic magnetic fields, because there are some Big Bang creation models uh, that speculate uh, that maybe there's tiny adjustments based on the fact that these intergalactic magnetic fields uh, may be stronger than a nanogauss. Uh, measurements tell us they're considerably weaker than a nanogauss. Uh, so, yeah, gravity is still the name of the game. Yeah. Well, but, and in the recent article that Lerner wrote, it wasn't just that. He didn't go into that. He looked at, as you said, some of the new results from the James Webb Space Telescope. And he says that they do not agree with the Big Bang, but of course, um, that's not true. And we could talk about those, you know, uh, specifically. Yeah, and I think uh, his big point, he made several points, but one that he really leaned on is that uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is showing us that galaxies in the early universe are too small. And I remember being stunned by that because it's like, well, in Big Bang cosmology, that's kind of the core of the model, that we expect the first galaxies to be smaller than the later galaxies. So why is Eric even bringing this up? Well, he brings it up because he says that those galaxies were closer to us when they emitted their light, and something closer appears bigger. But it's, it's a total fallacy because they were closer to us when they emitted their light, but they were still the farthest galaxies away. So therefore they should be smaller, not bigger. Right. So I read his stuff and I go, this doesn't even make sense because they're still the farthest galaxies away. And therefore they not only should appear smaller, they actually are smaller based on cosmological models. Right, and when I did the debate with him, he was basically saying, well, uh, the difference is you believe the universe is expanding, I don't, so. Right, and he has no explanation for the redshift of distant galaxies. I mean, that's another problem with his model. Well, I remember debating him back in 1991, and it's like, we didn't have uh, you know, direct distance measurements that affirm uh, the redshift distances, we do now. Yeah. I mean, uh, we actually have a, uh, a geometric distance measurement out to a galaxy 470 million light years away. I mean, that's more than adequate. And it's not the only one we've got measurements on. We've got several that are in the tens to hundreds of millions of light years away. Uh, so today there's really no basis for doubting 
that the redshifts are indicative of actual distances of these galaxies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and, you know, the other thing, another thing he brings up is um, something that is true in science is some of the measurements of, like, spiral, the smoothness of the galaxies we see in the James Webb Space Telescope, there's maybe 10 times more smooth galaxies than we expected. But this is how science works, right? Whenever we have a better instrument to measure things better, we refine our models. And so it's very rare that you turn on a new, better instrument and you see nothing that surprises you. Every time you build a better microscope, a better telescope, you always see something that surprises you, that forces you to refine your models. And, you know, he misquoted a few people um, who said, like Alison Kirkpatrick, who said she lays awake at night wondering if everything she's done is wrong, a, a University of Kansas professor, but she was really talking about the fine details of galaxy formation, not the Big Bang overall. So, so like many people are trying to make a point, he misappropriates quotes, and he, rather than, you know, realize that what we are seeing is going to slightly refine our models, he thinks it somehow throws completely throws out the whole model. Well, you know, a friend of both of us is Roger Windhorse, and he was part of a multi-author paper that began with the uh, title "Panic at the Discs." Yeah. And the learner quoted that and says, "Hey, these astronomers are in a state of panic," and failed to realize it was simply a pun on the band that's called uh, "Panic at the Disco." So, right. <laughs> Well, you know, we see this a lot with people who have already decided what they think their conclusion is and aren't don't really look at the um, evidence. We see this sometimes with certain Christians who hold a certain viewpoint and, and they pick and choose quotes and ideas that fit their preconceived notions and don't look at the the whole data. And and this is certainly what is happening in this idea that James Webb has somehow refuted the Big Bang. Well, I'm, I'm even skeptical of the idea that uh, these results were, quote, surprising. Yes, we are seeing more smooth disk galaxies than we expected. But as an observational astronomer, my response is, well, wait a minute. These are the easiest ones to detect. Yes. So it's like, uh, and the, the initial James Webb space images are not deep images. Yes. So it's going to pick up the easiest ones to detect first. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I'm approximately the same age as Eric Lerner, and I'm saying, and this came up in the debate I had with him too, hey, this is deja vu, in the sense that when they found the first quasar, they said, this doesn't fit. This quasar is way too close and way too bright. Well, guess what? Galaxies that are really close and bright are going to be the easiest ones to detect. Yeah. We shouldn't be surprised. And everybody was saying, a galaxy like 3C273 has got to be rare. That was back in 1964. Well, here we are in 2022, and guess what? 3C273 is rare. Right. Well, yeah. the reason I bring that up is because the paper that started with the Panic at the Discs does mention that 10 times factor. But but I agree with you that, you know, the things that are brightest, you're going to see first. And so you're going to overcount them. And that may be all that's going on. But, but at least Lerner is right in quoting that the paper says they found 10 times more than expected. That's correct. Yeah. Um, but where I was disturbed is there actually are Big Bang creation models that predict exactly that. Yeah. I mean, 
And I think that's something that our lay audience needs to appreciate. We astronomers are not dealing with just one Big Bang creation model. We're dealing with a family of Big Bang creation models. And that was one of the real motivations for getting the James Webb Space Telescope up and running was to see which of these several dozen Big Bang creation models that we're studying is fitting the data. And several of those models actually do predict that galaxies are going to form uh, quite early and quite rapidly. Now, to me, the clincher is, what are the first stars going to look like? Because uh, the first stars are going to tell us a lot about what we expect the first galaxies to look like. And uh, that's still on the table for James Webb Space Telescope to discover. And frankly, I'm not convinced that it's powerful enough to actually answer that question. It may be. Uh, people are hoping it is. Uh, but uh, the promise that it's going to tell us, give us an image of a firstborn star, maybe so, maybe not. And, uh, you know, also, we've already seen small mass firstborn stars. Uh, they take tens of millions of years to form. And the problem is they take so long to form, they get polluted by the ashes of yeah. the really big firstborn stars. Yeah. So people have made the comment, hey, you know, we haven't found the population three stars. Actually, we have. We found the tail end of the small mass ones. The hope is that James Webb will find the tail end of the big mass ones, which is going to tell us which Big Bang creation model is correct and which ones that we really should, uh, you know, throw to the side. Yeah, so for listeners who, who aren't familiar, because the Big Bang only formed mostly hydrogen and helium, the very first stars should just be made of hydrogen and helium. And right. we have yet to find stars like that, but they right. would have, the big mass ones would have burned out very, very quickly. So they're very hard to see. Yeah, you got to look at them 13.6 billion light years away. Yeah. The other thing, you know, that I think is important for people to understand, you talk about the different Big Bang models, but even the word Big Bang has different meanings now. When Fred Hoyle first introduced it, he meant the origin of the universe, the very singularity, if you will, that started the universe. But nowadays, scientists often talk about the Big Bang at a point sometime after that, maybe at 10 to the minus 20 or 30 seconds when the universe is you know, small and hot and expanding. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that said the Big Bang wasn't the beginning of the universe. And, you know, a lot of my friends emailed me about that. And the reason was because they weren't defining the Big Bang as the beginning. They were defining it as 10 to the minus 20 seconds or so after the origin. And so I think, you know, when you and I use the term, we use the term in the same way it was originated, as the origin of the universe. But I think listeners need to understand that sometimes scientists use it as not quite the time equals zero of the universe, but you know, a, fra a billionth or a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after that. Yeah, it's 10 to the minus 35 seconds as opposed to t equals zero. Right. And for most lay people, what's the difference? I well, mean I think the difference is that they get articles that say the Big Bang wasn't the beginning because right. you've defined it as not the beginning. And, and actually, I'm not sure it's even 10 to the minus 35, because that's before inflation. Some might put it after inflation at 10 to the minus 30th or so. Yeah, yeah, there's still a debate about how long the inflation. Right. So. Yeah. But, but I think it is important that, you know, people need to understand that 
the Big Bang itself is often used in different ways by scientists. And to really understand what they're saying, you have to have that term even nowadays defined, which we didn't need it defined when it was originally coined because it meant the beginning. Yeah, what's been happening too over the past 50, 60 years is we've gone from, hey, the universe had a Big Bang beginning to where we said, oh, it has a hot Big Bang beginning. Right. And now it has a hot Big Bang beginning uh, where most of the stuff of the universe is dark energy. And now they said, well, it's a hot Big Bang beginning where most of it is dark energy. And the second dominant component is dark matter. And now the debate is, well, is that dark matter all cold dark matter or a mixture of cold and warm dark matter? And so what we're seeing is that the Big Bang creation model is being progressively refined. And uh, the James Webb Space Telescope will not tell us exactly which Big Bang model is, but what it'll do is it'll take the family of Big Bang creation models we presently have and say, these three or four are in contention, these nine or 12 are not, let that go. Let's focus on the three as we focus more on the three, it's going to open up yet another subfamily of Big Bang creation models. Yeah. And frankly, that's never going to end. No matter yeah. how powerful the telescope we get, we're never going to have a precise Big Bang creation model. Yeah. But the more refinement we can get, the more details we can get, the greater the confidence that we astrophysicists can express. This indeed is the explains the origin and history of the universe and it perfectly matches what the Bible's been saying for thousands of years. So in that sense, I think we Christians can be excited about what James Webb is gonna to reveal to us, uh, rather than being afraid and saying, hey, uh, maybe this is gonna overthrow everything I believed. Well, isn't this true, Hugh, that the more we, every time we build a better instrument, it confirms things that the Bible says. It, yeah. it confirms more and more that the universe looks designed, that the universe had a beginning. And, you know, I, it might be worthwhile to just say that the evidence for the Big Bang, which is primarily three things, the expansion of the universe, the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the leftover heat from the hot Big Bang, and the amount of hydrogen and helium in the universe, those things are so well constrained and understood that the, it's never going to be overthrown. It's simply going to be refined. It's like many things in physics, right? Uh, the special theory of relativity is not going to be overthrown. It may be refined some days. And, and to me, this is the how firm a footing is that the universe had an origin some 13.8 billion years ago. It, it's not going to be overthrown. The evidence is way too strong, but it will be refined. And that's the wonder of science and the wonder of the James Webb Space Telescope. Yes, and where I think James Webb is going to make a spectacular boost to evidence for the Big Bang creation model, its capacity to measure the temperature of the cosmic microwave background radiation when the universe was only a half billion to a billion years old. Because uh, we've got really good measurements of the past temperature of the universe that go back to about uh, oh, the past 10, 11 billion years. But and we've got rough data for the first uh, three billion, but it, the James Webb should give us precision temperature measurements. Hmm. And to me, the rate at which the universe cools down from the cosmic creation event is the most compelling observational evidence 
uh, that indeed the universe arose from a big bang creation event. Because, uh, you know, there you get to see the entropy, you get to measure it with high precision. Uh, it's something where you've got real numbers being predicted from the Big Bang creation model, where you can make dozens of measurements. And uh, that's on the uh, docket for James Webb to actually do. We uh, have to wait two or three years. Uh, but when that happens, we'll come up with an article on it. Wow. So, so what... How is that measured by the James Webb? It's, it's not the CMB, is it? Well, what they do is they look at certain spectral lines, particularly carbon yeah. lines yeah. in very distant galaxies, uh, where the strength of the line uh, depends on the temperature of the cosmic microwave background radiation at that time in the history uh, of the galaxy. So the cosmic microwave background tells us how warm it was, 380,000 years after the cosmic creation event. But by looking at these spectral lines, we can actually measure precisely how that temperature is cooling down all the way to the present moment. So uh, let me again explain a little bit. So every element in the periodic table gives out what we call a spectra. It has certain frequencies of light that it shines. And what is being said is that those how bright that spectra is, certain lines depend on the temperature. So by measuring that, that spectra, how you know, bright these lines are that, that are indicative of an element in the periodic table, we can see what the temperature actually was. Yeah, I didn't know that, that's very nice. Yeah, I mean, that, that to me is the most compelling uh, evidence observationally that we have to be living in a Big Bang uh, universe. Right. That we can see uh, the temperature cooling off like that. So, uh, you know, what I really appreciate about you, uh, Michael, is that um, you tend to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, <laughs> and uh, you've actually written a book on the Big Bang, so I'm going to give you a moment to talk about that. I think you're targeting teenagers as a way to understand that. It's something we carry in our catalog here, so. Yeah, well, again, I, I have such respect for everything you have done to show you know, people how science and faith go together, science and Christianity in particular. And I had a, um, and, and, you know, like you, I believe that God created the universe in the Big Bang creation event. And I had somebody who asked me to share my views on that. And I actually gave them some of your books. This was a college educated woman and she was working with her, her um, junior high student who was homeschooled. And I don't know if you know if you remember, but Reasons to Believe used to publish a comic book. And yeah. I actually gave her the comic book and some of your we books. We still have those comic books. <laughs> yeah. So so she, um, even though she was college educated, she, she said, I didn't really understand any of the books, um, except I kind of understood the comic book. And so, you know, you are so good at writing for a technically minded audience um, in many of your books. And I just, as you said, I, I, I think I have ability to take complex ideas and make them really even more simplified. So I wrote a book that talked about how the universe, the Big Bang and the design the universe points to God and how that's compatible with what the Bible teaches about creation. And none of it, not much of it was unique to me. It was just putting it in a way that people could understand called called the the creator revealed is the title of the book but yeah i i think that you know when i'm able to and and your staff member jeff's is very good at this i think as well 
taking complex ideas and making them um, accessible to people who are not so technical. Sure. And, uh, you know, I also want to make a comment that uh, I, I do appreciate that Eric Lerner is alerting us to the fact that plasma physics mm. is important. We need to take that into account. Uh, and I kind of look at that, well, we're looking at galaxies in really great detail, like we can with the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, actually getting some insight on the strengths of magnetic fields and where those magnetic fields are being expressed at a stronger level in the galaxy actually does give us a more detailed picture of uh, the dynamics of the galaxy and the history of the galaxy. So I don't want to dismiss the plasma physics. Well, there are places where it is the dominant force, right? You know, in, in certain locations where there are strong magnetic fields, you get, you know, a lot of... of like pulsars, for example. Yeah. 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 And I, I'm trying to think, is there any other uh, claims he made about the James Webb Space Telescope and the Big Bang that we haven't addressed? Um, I'm not sure. It was mostly early galaxy formation is my recollection. That's true, uh, and one that he didn't really touch on, but other astronomers have, is the very first image that the James Webb Space Telescope uh, made of a galaxy, uh, showed that it was about a billion times the mass of our star, the sun, and was very compact and uh, quite bright. And uh, they made the comment that it looks like this dates back to the first 200 million years of uh, the universe, and that's when the very first stars are forming. Yeah. And so they were quite surprised that an object that massive, that compact, and that bright uh, showed up that early in the history of the universe. And so I wound up writing an article on it, making the point that once again, that's gonna be the easiest thing for the James Webb Space Telescope to detect at those distances. And uh, it's interesting, we've yet to detect another one like it. So it may be like 3C273. Uh, we were surprised, and uh, we said it's got to be rare, and maybe galaxies like that indeed uh, are are rare. The other thing I did note, however, is that the date they had on when that galaxy formed had an error bar of plus or minus 150 million years. Well, that's the first thing I noticed. It's like you you said earlier, is that you know that measurement not only is it the brightest ones you're going to see it. But I've read a few articles since then that say, well, we're not really sure exactly when this did form. It's not clear that it's necessarily 200 million years after the Big Bang. Yeah, there's a big difference if it's 150 million years after the Big Bang than if it's 400 million years. Absolutely, yeah. So. You know, what, what's happening with the James Webb um, reminds me a lot of what happens in my field of particle physics. When we first turned on the Large Hadron Collider, we have all these models of what's called supersymmetry, and we thought we'd see it for sure, and we didn't. And, and some people completely dismissed it and said, well, supersymmetry is not real. But, but in reality, all it did was throw out some models and make us look at other models as the probable more accurate models of supersymmetry. And so this is how science works. And this is the beauty of it. And, and as you said, to me, what James Webb is going to do is it's going to elucidate which models look more accurate. It's going to throw models out. It's certainly not going to do anything close to overturning our understanding of the last 13.8 billion year history of the universe. 
It'll help us in our understanding of the first 500 million year history of the universe. Yeah, and we do have to be patient. Uh, yes. There's a lot of other projects that are on the James Webb Space Telescope itinerary. Uh, people want to look at nearby uh, planets, uh, planets orbiting nearby stars. Yep. And so that's going to take up a lot of observing time. Yep. So uh, it may be a few years before we get these answers. We have physicists here at the University of Oklahoma who have observing time on James Webb. And it's not necessarily looking at you know, the cosmological questions about the origin of the universe. Right. Yeah. There's a lot on, on the plate there. Well, we're yeah. going to take a quick break here. If the Earth is truly the perfect home for humanity, why is the universe so deadly and dangerous? It seems that at every turn, doomsday for mankind is just around the corner. But what if all that appears so deadly and dangerous actually makes the flourishing of human life possible? Join astrophysicist Hugh Ross as he explores the fine-tuning of the outer reaches of our galaxy down to the depths of Earth's core. Visit reasons.org slash to the core to learn more. I know that the other thing Lerner mentions in his book, and he still mentions in articles, is that he thinks uh, the Big Bang nucleosynthesis is off by huge factors. Um, but that's not, hasn't been, you know, even looked at by the James Webb telescope yet. Um, and it's not off. The, the amount of helium two is right on, or three is right on, and four is right on, and lithium's off a little bit or something, but that may be too much to get into. So, so I don't know that I have much more to discuss. No, that is in his book, The Big Bang Never Happened, and it's in his yeah. subsequent articles where he says the nucleosynthesis isn't working, which is why it's put a lot of focus on that in um, the fourth edition of The Crater in the Cosmos. Right. Basically making the point, we no longer have a lithium problem, because he made yeah. a big deal about that. Yeah, we're getting the right abundance for uh, helium, but not the right primordial abundance for lithium. Well, actually, we are. Yeah, now, he still claims we're not. Pardon me? He still claims we're not. He still claims we're not. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's why I made the point, well, now that we have a deeper understanding of how stars consume lithium as they get older and older, and how the sun is anomalous in the way it consumes lithium compared to other stars, when we take that into account, the lithium problem goes away. Uh, but those are discoveries and measurements that have only been made in the last four years. Yeah. So, we had a talk recently on nucleosynthesis, you know, since it's the physics and astronomy department, and there are certain, um, there are certain, I forget which isotopes that we actually predict to one part in 10,000 correctly. I mean, it's really remarkable how well it does agree with what we see. Right. And now that we understand uh, how neutron star merging events explain the R process elements, because another point he made is that yeah. hey, look at the very heavy elements, we don't have a good explanation for it. Well, we didn't yeah. until the Event Horizon Telescope uh, came online. Uh, and that basically showed us, hey. So this might be something to discuss, Hugh, because, you know, I alluded to young Earth creationists, even though I didn't mention it, but but they do the same thing. They take an unsolved problem and they blow it out of proportion and say, therefore, you can't trust the whole theory. And these were unsolved problems when he first wrote, they're now solved. So that might be something worth talking about in the second 
part is just how science works and there are always unsolved problems. And if you've got a pet theory, you can point to those as supporting your pet theory. But in reality, those usually get solved. You know, they, they, always, they get solved and in most of the time they support the current theory, although at times they do change our paradigm. I mean, that would be something we could talk a little bit about science in general. Well, it's important because uh, unsolved problems basically are a guide to whether or not you got the right model. Yeah. Pursue the unsolved problem, get it solved, and if it reveals more unsolved problems that are at a greater level of catastrophe than yeah. you just solved, yeah. you know you've probably got the wrong model. Yeah. So, uh, and there's a lot of examples. The, new, the solar neutrino problem, right, was a great example of that as well. Right. So maybe if we just spent 10 minutes talking about, you know, that this idea that you can't take unsolved problems and assume that it means the theory is necessarily wrong and apply that to what we're learning with the James Webb, that might wrap things up. Yeah, it might. And I think there's even a theological application, because guess what? We have anomalies and unsolved problems in theology. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know. Theologians welcome unsolved problems. It's a way you get a thesis done. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with, with scientists. Hey, here's yeah. an unsolved problem. I'll yeah. tackle it. Uh, but it's always good news for the model when you solve the problem. Yeah. And incidentally, every time a problem gets solved, it reveals more problems you didn't even yeah, see of course. in the first place. But of those new problems that are a le lesser level of significance than the one you solved, that means you're probably on the pathway to truth. On the other hand, if it makes things worse, then you might say, well, maybe we need to make a major adjustment in the model, or maybe we got the wrong model altogether. Yeah. But I love where you started with this, Michael, and that is what the biblical principle that we see in Job and Psalms. The more we learn about nature, the more evidence we're going to uncover for the supernatural handiwork of the creator. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's been consistently the way it's been for the last 2000 years scientific breakthroughs always go in the direction of providing more evidence for the Christian faith, not less, which means why should we be afraid of uh, unsolved problems? We should be eager to embrace those problems saying, hey, this is going to give us even more evidence than what we had before. Yeah, you know, there is a um, an indictment against Christians that we have some kind of blind faith that we don't look for solutions but it's not true right we we try to solve these problems we're constantly looking for the truth and and we um embrace unsolved problems right it, it, if we want to find the truth you're going to have to look for the solutions to these problems and when we do they they point us in a direction of truth which is what we're looking for in the law in the long term anyway yeah, we should never be afraid of something that, hey, this doesn't really fit uh, my understanding or my model. The fact that it doesn't fit means there's some things we don't know. Yeah. Uh, this is an opportunity to dig deeper, to make more discoveries, and uh, to be confident that, hey, it's going to go in our favor. Let's go for it. Let's not back away from it. Let's pursue it with all the effort that we have. Yeah, we as Christians believe we serve a God of truth, so we should never be afraid to discover truth. It's it's the unsolved problems that, that keep us as scientists in our jobs, right? If we, at, at the turn of the 20th century, they thought they had solved all the problems till quantum mechanics came along. And it's these, these things that keep us awake at night. 
but but the beauty of it right is that we expect as you said when we solve a problem there's going to be more because the universe is so vast and, and so different than what we expect yeah yeah we expect that and it's something i share with uh, uh, seminary professors when i speak on their campuses you don't have to be worried about solving all the problems in the Bible, and we're yeah. going to have to lay off all the theologians because there's nothing more to discover. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, likewise, uh, I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where we say, you know, we got to lay off all the particle physicists. We've <laughs> solved everything. <laughs> uh, I like what one particle physicist said, hey, if we really want to solve all the deep problems. We're going to need a particle accelerator that extends from here to the most distant quasar, and that's not going to be funded anytime soon. Yeah, well, we we don't know how small things go, but yeah, this is the wonder of of what I do in my profession, right? I mean, you are constantly discovering things that nobody else knows, and and as we've mentioned a number of times, me as a Christian, every new discovery shows a character of God, often it's unexpected. His, his ways are not our ways, as Isaiah 55 says, and that's what I see when I discover the universe. The, the reason that our models are not correct is because the universe is far more intricate and imaginative than we can imagine. So we have to do the experiment and see it and then refine our models. And when we do, we're amazed at uh, the investment that the creator put into all of it. To yeah, get all these intricacies and uh, details. Not so. long ago, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that was encouraging scientists not to have the awe of the universe that we do, because they were saying, "Well, if you have awe, then you think there might be a creator." But we just want to study nature, and and so it's interesting. But we do have awe when we discover it, and this is what we're seeing in the the James Webb Space Telescope is even a bigger sense of awe at, at what we're learning about that first few hundred million years of the universe. And I think that's ubiquitous. I mean, you know, I've been posting some of these photos and giving people an explanation of the sciences behind it all. I'm noticing the atheists are just as awed by what they're seeing as we who are followers of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And people who are not scientists are, are likewise uh, just as awed by what they see. Yeah. And, you know, maybe a good way to wrap this up you know, you've been a particle physicist now for what, more than three decades? Yep. Are you still having fun? Of course. There's so much out there to discover. Actually, it's interesting because one of the frustrations that we've had at the Large Hadron Collider is we've only discovered what we expected. We have not yet found unexpected things. And that is the best part of science. So for those people who look at the James Webb Space Telescope and say, oh, this is unexpected. What are we going to do? That's what we live for, because it helps us understand the universe. So at, at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, we are still waiting for that discovery that is as of yet unexpected, which will open up a whole new realm of research. But yeah, the only reason we do it is because we want to understand the universe and because we're having fun. You're having fun and you're looking forward to the unexpected. Yep. And, uh, you know, bottom line, if you're watching this, don't leave it up to professional scientists like Mike and myself to study the book of nature. It's way too much fun. God wants all of us to be scientists, just like God wants all of us to be a theologians. Don't leave it up to your pastor. Theology is way too much fun. We're to study both books. And so regardless of what your educational experience is, 
God wants you to enjoy making these discoveries and discovering more and more of his glory. And you know, uh, Mike, uh, there's a big debate in the seminary campuses now about the hiddenness of God. And I think where you and I get to play a role is say, hey, when we're doing our science, uh, God doesn't seem to be all that hidden. Yeah. Oh, he's revealing himself left and right in spectacular ways. Yeah. And um, well, Romans 120 tells us the character of God should be seen in nature. And it, it is. It really is. And every day we're seeing more of that. And I think what's exciting about the 21st century, the book of nature is exploding in its revelation like never before. Yeah. We really are living at the time where knowledge is exploding. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today on Stars, Cells, and God. You can join the discussion in the comments below. And remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Stars, Cells, and God release each Thursday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we learn about science, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as creator, Lord, and Savior. Thank you.